Before I go to the topic of tonight's Dhamma talk, I wanted to share with you just something that I have been working with in my own life recently and have found it to be extremely helpful. It's a very small reflection uh, that I do when I'm listening. And it's just bringing to mind when I'm listening, and this can be listening to any person I encounter in my life. And, you know, I'm not on retreat, so there's all kinds of people that I'm meeting. You know, people in stores, gas stations, um, can be my fellow teachers or you. That bringing to mind that enlightenment is possible in any moment. And it could be that what is being said to me may be a trigger for the realization of awakening. And so I've just found it very rich to work with that and invite you in listening to the Dhamma talk just to listen with that sense of availability. Tonight's talk is called The Journey from Fear to Fearlessness. And as probably we all know, the journey of awakening is really quite the journey. It's not a linear path. It's often very turbulent. It's not as if we decide to meditate and we sit down and we hit calm and peaceful states and it just gets better and better. It doesn't happen that way. And my own experience has been that it really is a journey. And a lot of that journey is learning to be with, to face, to be in the presence of powerful mind states, mind states such as fear. And along that journey, we can have moments where we're completely overwhelmed by the state of fear, and other moments when we touch into a sense of fearlessness. So tonight I wanted to do a bit of exploration of what this journey from fear to fearlessness is. And I actually wanted to start in the place of fearlessness to help us to remember of this potential, this possibility, and that it is something that is possible. And so, first off, to look to the Buddha. And just, um, you know, to look at a couple of simple stories that seem to point towards his ability to be fearless, to not quiver and quake, even when uh, circumstances didn't look so good when he could be in the face of quite strong danger. And so just a couple of these stories come from uh, his encounters with Devadatta, who was his cousin, um, who became his disciple. And it happened that Devadatta at times became very jealous of the Buddha. And then later on in the Buddha's life, even though there had been periods when the Buddha spoke very, very highly of Devadatta, 
that there came a time when he was a bit more challenging. And there came a time when Devadatta, towards the end of the Buddha's life, asked the Buddha if he would please name Devadatta as his successor to take over after the Buddha's life was ended. And the Buddha responded no, that he would not do this. And so Devadatta was quite inflamed by this. And he wanted to kill the Buddha. He wanted to end the Buddha's life. And so there was a couple of things that he did. The first was to hire some archers to shoot the Buddha. And it said that the first archer in seeing the Buddha approaching was so awed by the Buddha's presence that he couldn't shoot that arrow. It wasn't possible for him. And it's also said that he then uh, was to become a disciple of the Buddha. There was also an incident where Devadatta had hired a um, hired someone who had a, a, a very wild, unruly elephant to charge the Buddha, to kill him. And, you know, it said that the elephant became drunk and then was set on this path of encountering the Buddha. But when the elephant saw the Buddha, he became uh, overpowered by the Buddha's presence again that he experienced the radiation of the Buddha's loving-kindness. Now these are two incidents where the Buddha was in the path of danger, but he didn't tremble, he didn't quake. He was able to embody this fearlessness that enabled other qualities to come forth and actually turn the mind of those who were seeking to cause him harm. And again, I think this is something that becomes possible when we are in this state of fearlessness, that then we can then help protect others from causing harm. So this is something of the possibility of the mind being fearless. I'd like to share another story that uh, is about Ajahn Pan, who was a Thai forest monk who lived in the early, early 1900s. And it's said that Ajahn Pan was at one time traveling with a group of monks through an area where there was tall grasses and thick bushes. And in the midst of these tall grasses and thick bushes, there was said to be many buffaloes, and snakes, and wild crocodiles, and wild elephants. And it had occurred recently that these wild elephants had actually charged and killed people in the area. So as the monks approached this area, some local villagers tried to persuade the monks to pitch their umbrella tents somewhere else. But by this time, the monks had already set up their umbrella tents. And one of the rules that they lived by was that once they had set up their tent for an evening, that they needed to stay there until morning. 
They needed to stay put. And so Ajahn Pan reiterated this to this group of monks, reminding them that they needed to do so because no matter what happens, you must be willing to die for the Dhamma. He then instructed these monks, who hearing these stories of of people actually having been trampled by the wild elephants, to do Brahma-vihara practice. And so it happened that around 10 p.m. these elephants did turn up, and they were led by a huge bull. And it said that at first they encountered and had to pass by Ajahn Pan's tent. The first elephant came and actually stood right over top of Ajahn Pan, his big belly right over top of the Ajahn. Then, one by one, the elephants squeezed past the monks. But the last elephant was more mischievous. And the villagers actually called this elephant Twist because he had uh, one twisted tusk. And after he had passed by the tents, he then turned around and started to charge the Ajahn's tent. But in this terrifying moment, the Ajahn was not disturbed. And he later said, with aspiration toward awakened understanding, my mind was equanimous. If I were to die in this mind state, I would go straight to Tushita heaven and be watching the elephant from there. And then Ajahn Pan was said to have directed his mind to penetrate the minds of his disciples. He said, I looked into the minds of my four companions and saw that they all aspired towards awakened understanding. I felt relieved that my fellow monks all had the same intention. The story goes on to say that the big bull elephant managed to stop the elephant with the twisted twisted tusk from charging. And then the bull elephant walked up to the Ajahn, kneeled down, and lifted up his trunk as if he was paying respect said the the Ajahn later was reported to have said, the bull must have been a bodhisattva. When I heard this story, I was touched by a couple of things. Just these monks, and nowhere in uh, where the story was told did it refer to these monks as being arahants as having, or being Buddhas, having reached the state of realization that the Buddha did. And yet, they had this strong aspiration, this strong intention and trust in their minds that if they stayed true to the Dhamma, that they would be protected. Not meaning that they wouldn't be charged, that they might not even be killed, but that they could trust in the lawfulness of life and that no matter what the outcome, their minds could be protected and this would have fortunate outcome. You know, as Ajahn Pan saying, uh, at least being born in a state where uh, they could further 
progress. They could remain in equanimity. That they didn't have to be tormented by the mind state of fear. And I was also just so struck by how they didn't fall into this state of fear. How they could remain equanimous and at ease, even though not being fully enlightened. It brought to mind the strength of the practice that we undertake. And so, you know, both thinking of reflecting on back to the Buddha and his embodiment of the fearlessness in the mind, and these monks being able to protect their minds, this being a potential of how the practice can really serve us, and not needing to be fully enlightened in order to reap some of the fruits of this. If we look back at our own lives and think of the many times we may have encountered fear. When I think back to my childhood, some of my first memories were those where fear arose strongly. It leaves quite an impression in the mind. And when we aren't working uh, through bringing wise attention or bringing mindfulness to the experience of fear, it really starts to dictate how we live our lives. We find that fear arises in moments where we don't see clearly. We're not quite sure of what's happening. And because of this confusion, we tend to step into deeply habituated patterns. Danger, fear, we just recoil, we just move away from whatever it is that um, has caused the arising of this fear. And this can have uh, a way of keeping us living a very restricted life if we don't consciously learn to work with fear. We become bound by the fear. We don't want to move into territory where we're going to feel challenged, we're going to feel uncomfortable, uh, where this fear can arise. And so we're continually trying to protect ourselves, living very much within the confines of what we know, what is comfortable. We find that we are continually trying to manipulate circumstances in our lives so that we don't touch into this. So even if we have just a fear of being uncomfortable, we'll start to manipulate our lives so we don't experience this fear. You know, an example of this can be just in our sitting practice, having a fear of sleepiness. And so, rather than facing the fear, rather than facing the sleepiness, we start to manipulate how we do our practice so that we won't encounter this mind state. And it becomes a very rational path 
where sleepiness arises and the fear arises, and then we think, okay, I'll just go to bed, and then I'll wake up and I'll be much more clear in the morning. And uh, we start to look at ways that we can practice. Oh, after lunch is a time when sleepiness gets encountered, so rather than a be with that, I'll just take a nap after lunch. We start manipulating our experience so that we won't touch into this sleepiness or the fear that we might experience in relation to the sleepiness. When we are living uh, with this state of fear and not inquiring, investigating, looking deeply into it, we will find it a very narrow existence. And so needing to shift our relationship with fear, to be one of inquiry, to be one of investigation, to become one of knowing this state deeply, intimately, and to be able to experience this state in its true nature. It's very challenging because it is a deeply embedded habit. Fear of danger. If we look at it in the world of animals, we can see how deep fear runs. Sitting out in the natural world, being with animals, just noticing how many times it's as if an animal has to live looking over their shoulder because the reality of danger is so strong. And so they live with this heightened sense of fear just as a means of survival. This became really apparent to me on one retreat that I sat, where I sat outside a lot. And I sat outside in a lovely grove that was uh, co-inhabited by many forms of animals. You know, different squirrels, chipmunks, groundhogs, deer, um, skunks. And because I was sitting silently, many of these animals would be very close to me before they would realize my presence. And then I noticed that it was always a similar reaction that arose in them. You know, they'd be scurrying along, and then suddenly they'd see me. And it was watching them step into terror. Just this fear came arising very strongly. More often than not, they would simply bolt, run away. Sometimes there was, you know, squirrels and chipmunks can have degrees of courage where they would stop. And, you know, some of them would actually scold me or, you know, that they, they weren't completely running away by their fear. But, you know, after day after day sitting out in this grove, I became so attuned to this, you know, uh, fear that comes from basic survival. Our gift 
as human beings is that we don't have to simply be run by this fear. That we can uh, liberate the mind from the unpleasant, the torments, the, the state of agitation that fear keeps us trapped in. We can learn to work skillfully with this state in order to see it in its true nature. We live in a world that gives us many opportunities to do this. In the external world in which we live, there are many dangers around us at times. Some of us may live in big cities where just to walk down the street at night, there is danger around us. We live in a world where terrorism is becoming uh, more and more apparent. And this can bring this external sense of danger. In our internal worlds, we can find danger in just the untrained mind, the unruly mind that can be so savage, can be so uh, harmful, you know, that we, we create situations are in our own minds that we become terrorized by our own minds. Whether it's internal or external, the fear arises out of some perception of danger. Whether or not this be a true perception. But It's a mechanism that happens when there is perceived danger. Sometimes this danger can actually, perception of danger can be healthy. It will help us to move out of harm's way, such as when we're crossing a street and a big truck comes bearing down on us. Sensing danger can help us to move swiftly out of the path. For those of of you that were here last week, I spoke about hiri and otapa. This is moral shame and moral dread or fear. And these are actually said to be healthy states of fear, where uh, with moral shame and moral dread, there is, these arise out of actually a state of respect, either a state of self-respect for ourselves, where we don't want to be doing things that cause shame, that cause us to feel bad, wretched about what we've done. Or we don't want to do things that cause harm to another. We don't want to be reproached by other others for having really caused pain in the world. And so they help us to live with heedfulness. They help us to live wanting to protect, wanting to make safe, um, wanting to live respectfully. 
we can find this heedfulness in our practice. When we start to observe how many moments of mindlessness we have, and then we start to see the consequences of those moments when we don't pay careful attention. And that, you know, helps to instill a healthy form of fear that brings in this heedfulness where we want to be very diligent in our mindfulness so that we don't do things that cause pain and suffering. So there can be a healthy form of fear. Our unhealthy fear is usually based upon attachment or aversion. It may be based upon wanting to guard against loss of loved ones, where we have fear of uh, loved ones dying. And so we really want to protect these people. It can be uh, where we have fear around death or aging. All of these being inevitable. And to live in a state of fear or live in a state of wanting to hang on, to cling to uh, these aspects of life is not going to be healthy. And it becomes much more healthy to learn to face our fears around this, to face our fears of loss, to face our fear of death, to face fear of aging. If we don't face fear here, we will move into living a very listless life, or we will live with a sense of futility because we'll have a sense of nothing matters, everything's going to die anyways. And this is not true wisdom. But this happens when we don't have the courageousness of heart to really turn and face the fear. We find that unhealthy fear is really debilitating, that it stops us, limits us, keeps us from moving into the unknown, keeps us confined, keeps us from really stepping into the unknown because we're so clutching at control, trying to contrive life to be a certain way. So a great necessity to learn to face the fear if we are going to wake up. Some of the common ways that we experience the fear are fear about the future, where we have obsessive planning about the future. And in this way, trying to control our lives. You know, we 
even sitting on the cushion, going to lunch, we start planning exactly how we're going to do it, what we're going to do, what we're going to have for lunch, how much we're going to eat. And this is before we actually get up from our cushion. But you know, it's like trying to keep ourselves safe, protected. We find that we may have fear of events, events in our lives, things that might cause us pain, might expose us from danger. And so start trying to live in a way that we feel more safe and protected. Some of us have strong fear of failure, where we might fear that we are in some way really inherently flawed, that we are unworthy. And so this fear drives us to continually want to be proving ourselves, wanting to prove ourselves to be worthy, wanting, it can take us into trying to portray a portrait of ourselves that we think would be really acceptable to others. And we become trapped within this image. Some of us may have a fear of rejection, a fear that if we really just were true to ourselves, that people wouldn't like us and would shun us. And so we hold back. We stay pulled back from life, not living fully. Or through fear of rejection, we might find that if someone is kind to us, that we become overly attached. We cling. We hang on. We want that person to continue to like us to appreciate us. Just looking in your own life to see what are the triggers for fear? What prompts this arising of fear? In our practice, we might find we have fear arising in relationship to body pain. It's very common. As we sit, the body starts to hurt. It gets stronger, stronger. And at some point, it can happen that we start to project that pain. You know, that there's a pain in the back. And we project that the rest of our retreat is going to be filled with that pain. And that becomes really heavy, really burdensome. And so we move, we get up. And you know, it could have just been a momentary experience. You know, just a moment of tightness, a moment of a stabbing sensation. And yet, through not being able to stay present, we shift, we move, we move away from. Just noticing when you sit down on the cushion, how many times we make just small body adjustments, which can arise just from not being aware of this fear of body pain, body dukkha. It doesn't mean that we have to sit until we rot. 
No, it can just be an invitation to look into what seems so unbearable in this moment. What is happening? Learning to be with this fear itself. We can find that there might be mind states that we're fearful of. That, you know, because we're sitting here spending so much time alone, we're afraid of getting caught in habituated mind states of self-hatred, judgment, unworthiness, that can lead to a downward spiral. And we don't like these mind states. And so with that, we tend to reject them, to push them away. And as a result, we feel fragmented. We can find in our practice that there is fear in relation to the discovery of the truth of impermanence. We find as we become more and more aware of how everything is changing, all conditions are changing, that there arises a real feeling of vulnerability. We experience at times a groundlessness. Nothing in conditioned experience is reliable. And if we've lived for so many years with a strong perception of permanence, which helps us to feel more confident, more stable, more secure, then as this starts to crumble, terror can arise. It's very challenging to face this truth of impermanence. And if we don't learn to be steady with fear as it arises there, we will pull back. We will shy away. We will close down. We can also find in our practice that there comes a strong fear of annihilation. This is from a a ninth century Zen master named Huan Po. People are afraid to forget their minds, fearing falling through the void with nothing to stay their fall. They do not know that the void is not really void, but the realm of the Dhamma. When we have fear of annihilation, there's a concept that's present in the mind, often very hard to detect, very hard to see. But we need to know that that fear of annihilation is a concept and not the truth of the way things are.
our experiences of fear will vary wildly from just being a very niggling fear that is just a sense of unsettledness that keeps us on the surface of our experience to full-blown terror. This terror, too, which is a part of the journey. And so there's many different ways that we will work with fear. And it will vary in different moments. Not always dependent on the strength of the fear, but our capacity in any moment to face the fear, to know the fear. Sometimes we will find that we can only just know it by lightly touching the edges of the fear. And, you know, it's as if we're really looking at the fear out of the corner of our eyes. And that's all that we have the capacity in that moment to do. And in those moments, to know that it's enough, that that's what we can do. It takes great courage even to do that much. I'd like to share a quote from a woman named Aung San Suu Kyi, a Burmese woman who really uh, has been a strong pillar for the people in Burma because she was once elected to be the political leader in that country, was never allowed to do so, has lived under uh, military arrest for a number of years, and yet continues to be strong, continues to face the challenge, to face danger, and in doing so uh, represents something of what the courage to face fear can be. She says about fearlessness, fearlessness may be a gift, but perhaps more precious is the courage acquired through endeavor. Courage that comes from cultivating the habit of refusing to let one's own fear dictate one's actions. Courage that can only be described as grace under pressure. And so, in moments when fear is really strong, and we can only touch the edges of it, it may well be that this is grace under pressure. But our willingness just to know it to this extent is not being stopped by it. This allows us to stand true to a nobility of heart that we all have. as we work with fear, to let this be strengthened by the quality of courage, and then to really begin to rely on the tools of the practice. Because it was one thing as a child when we didn't know what to do in the face of fear. But now we can actually have tools that we work with, where we develop a 
direct relationship with this fear. And that can be, you know, in a moment where fear arises, just to name it, just to know it. I love the title of Pema Chodron's book, The Places That Scare You, A Guide to Fearlessness in Difficult Times. And our practice takes us into this journey of the places that scare us, the places that scare us the most. And so we learn to be steadfast in these places through bringing in mindfulness. Sometimes it won't always be so easy to see that it is fear because it's often underlying other difficult mind states, such as anger. You know, often when anger arises, fear is underneath it. But we'll have to learn to be steady with the anger, the knowing of the anger, to be able to touch into this fear that may be underlying it. As we notice fear, to notice if it is pure mindfulness that is aware of the fear. And pure mindfulness means that we can see it and just name it as fear. And that in that that naming of it, it's like a mirror of acceptance. We're not pushing away. We're not trying to get rid of. We're simply knowing it. I discovered that one can actually uh, note fear with fearing mind. And when we note fear with fearing mind, what happens is that the fear tends to escalate. And we find it as if we're almost trying to, um, we have a big charging elephant coming at us and we're waving this little feather of, uh, you know, like a sparrow's, feather and we're waving it at this big tiger <laughs> or elephant and it doesn't it's not very effective <clears throat> so to note when you're aware of the knowing of fear to really see is it filled with non or filled with acceptance or are you trying to note that fear to get rid of it And when we can really note it with acceptance, it's it's as if we can say, okay, fear, this is what's happening in my life. This is what I can learn from. And if I have to be with you for the rest of my life, that's okay. That's the way, the quality of acceptance we need to bring to being with this mind state. And then, as we're with the fear, to... Watch the thoughts that arise in relationship to the fear. Because this is how we often feed the fear. We perpetuate it through what we think, the story we tell ourselves about the fear. And we really begin to believe in the story. And so, if we can come back into the direct experience of this moment, it's quite likely 
that this moment is bearable. We can be with whatever is happening for one moment. If we find that we're really caught up in this state of fear and the thoughts are rampant, sometimes it's helpful then to open the eyes so we can connect with the immediacy of our environment, so we can be with present time experience. And even at, so really when fear is strong, we want to look towards what is going to help us connect with what is really happening right now. And I found at times when fear is really strong that you know, to bring me back into connection, I might actually need tactile sensations. And so you know, sometimes putting the hand on the floor, coolness of the floor, and just focusing the mind there helps us to bring us back into connection. Also to notice when the fear is present. If there's some concept that is feeding the fear. And sometimes these concepts are so close to our noses that we fail to see them. And, you know, I spoke about the fear of annihilation. This can be one that we don't tend to see. And so, you know, when, when in a moment when fear is strong, looking to see if there's some unrecognized concept. <clears throat> At times when fear is very strong, we may need to look towards finding balance. Now, if we have, uh, when, when the experience is really strong and we look to the body, it might feel very cold, very death-like. The, the breath might be very hard to connect with jagged, and it can be as if we're almost gasping for breath. And when we stay with that experience, at times it will accelerate that feeling. And if we don't have the capacity to remain with it, then we might need to look towards what will help us to feel uh, more a sense of balance, a safety that will enable us to strengthen the mindfulness, to be able to open more fully to the fear should it arise again. So some things that I've found helpful at times like this, um, you know, in being with the body, instead of focusing on, you know, the breath, which is so agitated, it might be to turn the attention just to the outer edge of the body, just letting the attention rest gently, in knowing the outer edge of the sensations of the body. Or it can be helpful to just sit, opening to hearing, sound arising, being known, and disappearing. Helps to calm the mind. Helps to bring us back into balance. Or In walking meditation, just an awareness of the soles of the feet as one is walking. And walking quickly, 
so that there's, there's no room for the fear to come in. So there's just an awareness of contact, 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 and those sensations, you know, hardness, hardness, hardness. Um, this, and, and, and keeping it really steady, this too, helping to calm the mind. Or sometimes it can be helpful to do the metaphrases and to do them very quickly. May I live in safety. May I have peace, happiness. May I be free of physical pain. May I live with ease of well-being. Whatever phrases we use, and just to recite them very quickly to ourselves. And this again can help to calm the mind. Sometimes reflections may be helpful. In the face of fear, which seems so solid, so terrifying, to reflect that this state too is impermanent. This state is born of conditions. As these conditions change, the fear will disappear. we might reflect on how those who practice the Dhamma are protected by the Dhamma, how this practice has a way of protecting the mind from torment. So sometimes we may need to find balance, Uh, may not have the capacity to dive deeply into the fear. And then there may be times when we can plunge right into the face of the most intense fear and terror that we have ever experienced. At these times, we draw upon the confidence that we have built through our practice. It's where we have a very strong, verified faith. And we find that we can really plunge with eyes wide open into the strongest depths of fear. And the fear has no place to take hold because the mind is protected by mindfulness. It can just know of this experience. It can be with this experience. It's not pulled out into uh, thoughts that will fuel the fire of this fear. And in this way, we come to know it in its true nature. By learning to work with fear on the cushion, or informal practice, it will help to inform us of how to work with fear in our lives, so that we're not continually 
run by the state of fear. A healthy fear being that uh, to know that so long as we're moving through the cycles of samsara, we will never be safe. And even if we find ourselves in the best of circumstances, enjoying great seeming security at some point, that things can change in any moment. And so this type of fear will help us to uh, be motivated to look deeply to be able to find that which is fearless, that which is a true refuge, moving from fear to fearlessness. Let's just sit for a moment. As we sit, sitting with a spaciousness, relaxedness, and ease of mind and body, and yet still alert, aware, knowing. Seeing if we can focus on relaxation, softening, trusting, and noticing moments where there might come contraction, tightness, pulling away from experience. Places where fear is born. becoming aware of these places, we can look deeply into these experiences to know the qualities of the experience, the texture of the experience. With fear, there may be trembling, shaking, agitation,
and just relaxing into the knowing where we are fearful. Letting our relationship with fear be simple and courageous. As we soften, relax, and let go of this mind state, it helps us to bring the shadows of our mind into full awareness. Seeing the phantoms of our minds the illusory shadows that we have so believed to be true and are empty in essence, subject to change. Ungovernable and thus not me, not mine, not who we are. In seeing this, relaxing into a deep trust of the way that things are. Relaxing into the great ocean of the Dhamma. May all beings know the mind free from fear. So closing with the sharing of blessings. Great virtue, my mother.